If you are at the end of a project, maybe the end of your tenure at a company, perhaps the end of your life, what would you say in summary to those who are coming after you? Better yet, what would you show them as a summarizing picture? Or what would you share as a culminating statement um, that would say, this is how we're wrapping it all together. This, this is what it's all about. How would you say that, show that, or share that in a way that was unforgettable? Here's what Jesus did. Jesus highlighted a poor widow and how she gave as a way to showcase how we should live. That story is found in Mark 12. Take your Bibles. Open them to Mark chapter 12. Put a finger on verse 38. And I want to show you this morning how Jesus summarized true discipleship. He's three days away from the cross. And he's teaching his disciples here towards the very end of his life and ministry. And he uses this simple encounter and he paints an object lesson, a word picture, and he uses it to show these guys really what true discipleship is all about. And in fact, here's what we're gonna learn today. Here's what he says in this, in this story that true discipleship is giving everything because you love and trust God. Would you read that with me? It's real simple, say it together. True discipleship is giving everything because you love and trust God. I want you to see how this surfaces in two stories that contrast themselves, beginning in verse 38 of Mark 12. We're gonna see some understanding about the scribes and we're gonna see that contrasted to this poor widow. I'll begin in verse 38. You follow along with me. Mark records Jesus teaching this. He says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and they like greetings in the marketplaces. They like to have the best seats in the synagogues and the best places of honor at feast who devour widows' houses. And then, watch this next phrase. This describes everything that's gone before it. For a pretense, they make long prayers. And quite categorically, this is why they do everything else. This is why they're in the marketplaces. This is why they're walking around in long robes, the best seats, the places of honor. It's all for a pretense. They want you to think there's something that they're actually not. He wraps this up by saying, they will receive the greater condemnation. So here's an explanation, really a description of, of what I would call not leaders but leeches. They're out to take, not to give. We see this especially in the phrase, they devour widows' houses. They would use the law, not only their cultural law, but even God's Old Testament law, they would twist it and manipulate it to get what they wanted, even at the expense of older people whose only source of, of security may have been their home. They'd find a way to, to get it for their own pockets. Ironically, he discusses a widow next. He says, watch out for leeches who want to take, take, and take 
for their own selves, but they'll appear to be wanting to give. They're, they're not really leaders, they're just leeches. He says next, this is in juxtaposition to a widow that he sees going into the temple to give her offering. Look at verse 41, describes this next scenario. As he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box, many rich people put in large sums. And by the way, we know from other gospel accounts that part of this group were the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees making their daily or weekly offering. In the temple, it would look something like this. There were between seven and 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles that would be on the wall. And so if you really wanted to make a, a great showing, you would take your coins and you would drop them in these receptacles and they would make a lot of noise. And so when you hear a lot of noise, what does your head do? It turns. And so the Pharisees in their long robes, the scribes in their long robes, the Sadducees in their long robes, walking in these great lines and dropping their coins, probably, you know, uh, tons of them, right? Ching, 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 ching. Heads are turning. They're getting just what they're after. People are looking at them. In the middle of this kind of situation comes this widow. The Bible says that she put in two small copper coins. It would have been about a, and you'll see this in some of your notes in your Bible, so this is not anything that I'm smart about. I just read what you read. But it's just a fraction of a day's wage. That's all it is. They put in large sums. She put in a very small amount. It probably made no noise. It didn't turn any heads. But it turned the head of Christ, didn't it? To the extent that he calls his disciples to him and he says to them, truly I say to you. Now notice how different his description, his commentary is about this widow as opposed to the, to the scribes. He says, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Here's why she put in more. Verse 44. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. What a contrast between those who think they're leaders only doing their things to be seen of people and then this widow who could really care less what anyone thinks and yet she garners the attention of Christ because she does not give out of her abundance she gives out of her poverty and we see here that Christ notices really not what we give he really notices what we have left over he doesn't see necessarily the gift he sees the heart behind the gift this is just a, a beautiful contrast between, like I said, leeches and leaders, image versus substance, takers versus givers. Essentially, Jesus here uses her example, an unknown poor widow, to teach us the value that God places on wholehearted commitment, on what I call all-inness, okay? That true discipleship is giving everything, or as he said in his commentary on the widow, is giving everything you have. Literally, this is translated as this. You lay down your whole life. And interestingly, the disciples, this would be what they would do in the next several years as their commitment would be severely tested. And 11 of those 12 would do exactly what this widow did. They would lay down their whole life. So Christ here is saying to us, following me, all the way to the end is far more than just giving money or giving part of who you are or what you have. It's giving 
everything. And maybe you're wondering, Todd, how can we say this is the point of the text? We can say this because Jesus said it. Let me prove it to you. Look at what I think is the most insightful phrase in the text. It's in verse 43. It's the beginning of Christ's commentary on the widow. And what does he say in verse 43? Every eye on this verse. He says, the poor widow put in more than all those who were contributing. Now, that cannot be true mathematically. Because the verse also describes that many rich people were putting in what kind of sums of money? Say it with me. Large sums of money. And she was putting in how many coins? Two. So mathematically, or in an audit fashion, He's not talking about, uh, you know, like finances here. Can we just be honest? Now, this is a good scripture passage to teach on giving, but that's not my aim this morning. My aim is to show you what Christ is actually showing his disciples, that, that giving and living, following him all the way to the end, discipleship is more than amount or show or appearance. It's a heart issue in which you are willing to give everything you have. That was his commentary. In giving two coins, she gave everything she had. And so he's saying, that's what it means to follow me. So he's not really giving like this commentary on her giving record, by the way. He's not providing insight into financial audits or a capital campaign. (laughs) He's giving insight into what it means to follow him with your whole heart. He's using a financial illustration, yes, but he's saying we can see by the widow... When she gave those two coins, she gave her next meal. She gave her next prescription. She was giving everything, all she had her entire life, everything she had to live on. Now that's following Christ. And this is his precise point. Again, I'll say it to you and I'll show it to you. That true discipleship is giving everything because you love and trust God. It's not simply giving some things because you love and trust yourself. It's giving everything because you love and trust God. So would you say this one more time with me? From these simple verses that close out Mark 12. They're not hard to understand. The true point surfaces easily. We we may not like it, but we would say this is clearly the point. Would you say it with me? True discipleship is giving everything everything because you love and trust God. I have a confession to make to you. You already know this, but you haven't voiced it. I'll voice it. I'm not there yet. I'm not the widow. Now, I'm not going to speak for you where you are, but I'll put the cards on the table for myself. I'm not there. Now, now, don't hear me wrong. I want to be there. I voice to God on a regular basis. I say this, God, everything I have is yours. I pray this regularly. I surrender all. But are you like me in that when you say that you find your selfish nature is deeply embedded (laughs) That your worldly cravings, they pull at you with a fierce force. And so while you mean it, Lord, I give you my all. 
suddenly that hand reaches up and says, oh, not everything. And it wants to pull it back. Am I the only guy in the room that struggles with that? I don't think so. Amen on that laughter right there. So, so when, I, when you hear me say, I'm not there yet, it's not an issue of desire or intent. But man, I, I battle sin. I struggle with selfishness. And often when I'm saying, Lord, everything's on the altar, what I secretly mean is some things are on the altar. I tell you that because I've been digesting this summarizing picture that Christ uses to show his disciples what he's really after. And I've been under some conviction. Now, I've had several weeks to kind of process this. I'm giving you just a few minutes. I realize that. I, um, I usually, with our study group on Mondays, we'll stay weeks ahead of our text and we talk about them and, and discuss them. This past week, though, I, I interrupted the schedule and said, guys, can we talk about this story one more time? Because I, I want to ask you, what does it look like to give everything you have? I mean, I'm, I was wrestling and grappling with this phrase. She gave everything she had. Like, a lot of pastors could jump on that and make you all feel really guilty. <laughs> make ourselves feel guilty. That's not my intent. But I am asking this question. In light of the story and Christ's clear teaching, what does it look like in 2020 to give everything we have? Is that an okay question to ask? Shouldn't his people ask this morning, what does it look like to live this out today? And so I began to ask myself that question. I asked our study group that question. And this morning, I want to ask you to ask yourself that question. In fact, this week, Pastor Travis has dedicated our entire small group lesson, and he wants you to dedicate your entire small group time to application of this text, of these contrasting stories. What are we to do next? What does it look like to give everything you have? So I'm going to try to answer that question as I sense God leading in my heart about me. Now, this may apply to you. You may say, Todd, man, I'm rowing that boat with you perfectly. Great. You may have other application points. I just want to spend the rest of our time applying this. And I'll probably peel up my chest cavity and let you see where in my life this is really kind of pricked and prodded and nudged. Join me where you want to. If God gives you other pressure points, hallelujah. Amen? So I think it's helpful and necessary to ask ourselves, what does it look like in 2020 for God's people to say, we're all in, we're giving everything we have? What does that mean? What does it look like? Let's try to answer the question. I think, and again, I'm going to speak to you from, from my time just wrestling with this, grappling with this. And so most these four things are probably going to be more about my own life, and you'll just have to kind of peek into a little bit. Let's walk through these together. I'll apply them to our church as well. I think, first of all, giving everything I have means that we will lay aside our reputation. Now, I want to draw these from the text, but they are applicational. We've seen the interpretation. That's a, that's a solid single-minded understanding. But what are the applications? Here's one. I think it means we must lay aside our reputation and we must lose the fear of man. You know, this, this widow, she really could care less what folks were thinking of her, right? She wasn't approaching the receptacles hoping that folks would look 
or that they wouldn't look. She wasn't worried about what they thought about her amount. Apparently, she didn't care at all what anyone thought. She was simply going to give, even though it was all she had left. And in all frankness and all transparency, and those of you who know me very well could attest to this, this is probably my number one struggle. Did you know that? Is I care too much what people think. Now, as I age, I feel like I'm getting better at that. The Lord is moving me slowly but surely and sanctifying me. I think one of my recent fears has been that I haven't done so well in the past. I think back to when I was a young youth pastor and um, how I worded things and how I preached. And I don't know if it was sinful, but sometimes I just drew a lot of hard lines in places and I probably ran more folks off than than maybe I helped equip. I don't know. But I think some of my tendencies is like, I don't want to be that guy anymore. And maybe I've had a little bit of a pendulum swing where suddenly, I, I, at times, I, I feel nervous about speaking truthfully. And you may not believe that. You may think, Todd, we think you're pretty bold up there. Well, can I say to you, it's easy to be bold in front of 500 people. Do you know that? You're not going to say anything back in the crowd, probably. I hope you don't normally, right? And so typically, these kind of environments are easier. What's hard is when you're face-to-face, one-on-one, across the table, and you've got to have an important conversation. And you know, sometimes my knees just get really trembling. Do yours? My voice gets quivering. I have second, third, and fourth thoughts. It really shows up in moments when I have to have an important conversation, especially with folks when, when we know we disagree or, or they know how I feel about things and, and, and that we want to talk about it. You could put this word on it. You could say it's hard in evangelism. You could use that word, maybe the word witnessing. It, it goes beyond that. But I find that sometimes I care more what other people think than what God thinks. And I've repented again this week. of Lord, I don't want to live that way. I, don't, I want to lay aside my reputation. I had a chance to live this out a couple of Fridays ago when I had lunch with uh, my one. By that, I don't mean my wife in this case. <laughs> but you know, we've been, we've been all selecting one person we can pray for. This year, they would come to Christ. If you've not taken your Who's Your One card, man, get one from one of our ushers, see us at the front afterwards, and, and fill it out and, and turn it in. You can tear it off. We are praying. We've got several hundred that we're praying for every week. They'll come to Christ. And we read, Julie and I were here last night, in fact, looking at that board. And some of them, we know who they are because uh, you've turned them in. We know that, how they're connected to you. And just, it's, it's, it's very um, meaningful to pray through those names and think about, oh, this is who so-and-so's praying for. This is who so-and-so's prayer. This is that family member. This is that worker. It's very, very meaningful. So I had lunch with the person I wrote down. And the reason I had lunch with him is because when I heard about Kobe Bryant's tragic and sudden death, the Holy Spirit said to me in an instant, Todd, this is a great avenue for you to talk to this person and ask them, do they know what's going to happen when they die? Uh, this person that I'm working with, and know it, they, they like sports, I like sports. And so... I just said, this is the Holy Spirit. So I texted them and said, hey, let's have lunch soon again. They said, sure. And I said, I want to, and I, in the text, I said, I want to talk to you about something pretty important. They said, I'm all ears. I thought, okay, that's round one. That's a good victory. So we sat down over lunch, and, and it was fine until I knew that the door was opening to kind of have the, the more important conversation. Are you with me? And you know what? My voice started getting like, <clears throat> I'd drink some more, you know, lemonade. I'm, I'm trying to... Clear my throat. I'm just getting nervous. I'm a pastor. You think, oh, you got it down pat. I don't have this down pat. I was fearful of what he would think. I finally voiced the words. I said, can I just share with you 
what I think happens when someone's, we were talking about what happens when we die. And I said, can I just share with you what I believe the Bible teaches about what happens when people die? He said, sure, I'd love to hear that. I'm like, okay, good, but I'm still nervous, right? And I was able to get, like, get through the entire gospel about Christ's love for us and his death for us, resurrection, and, and just talking about things. And he said he'd be willing to read a, a book that I brought with me. I was hoping for a good response. It's a short little book, but he said he'd read it. And we're gonna talk about it again over lunch. But can I say this to you? The win in that for me, I wasn't going in for, I wanted him to get saved, yes. But the win in that for me was that I actually got to the conversation and watch this, cross the threshold. I'm trusting God for his salvation, but in that moment when the door was open, we talked about sports and Kobe's sudden death, and I said, you ever wonder what happens when you die? That's when I was like, oh my goodness, what if he says no, what do I say? What do I? But he said, I sure do. He said, he, said, he said, in fact, last week I asked my barber about that. Like, man, did you hear about Kobe? What do you think happens? And I was like, thank you, Jesus, you know? But here I got, I got to take the step over the threshold, right? And I was nervous, worried about what he would think of me. And it's just one of those examples of, I think that following with everything you have, giving everything you have, for me and probably for most of us, means we must lay aside man's approval and our desire for a good reputation. Doesn't mean that we have to be impolite or inconsiderate, that we don't love people. Are you hearing me well? But listen very carefully. In that moment of having lunch with the person I'm praying will come to Christ, his eternal destination was far more important than my temporary rep reputation. In fact, my reputation is not near as important as my responsibility. So both of those things weigh in on me. They help me not be afraid of, of man's approval or disapproval, but instead to look more highly at, at God's approval. I think this has some massive implications for all of us. I would encourage you to think through whose opinion matters most to you. And to be willing to lay aside your reputation for the sake of Christ's name. The Bible refers to this in Philippians 2 with this phrase. That when Jesus came to earth, he emptied himself. He took upon himself the form of a servant. Now we can go into all the theological aspects of that word. I won't in this message. But it does have the connotation that he no longer considered as important what people thought of him. If I can say it in that way. He was with sharing glory with the Father as one with the Father. But he was willing to let all of that be set aside temporarily in order to come to earth and be a man and then to die as a humble servant. One writer calls this being a leader of no reputation. If you own a book that kind of walks you through that, it's called The Steward Leader. It's a good book. Scott Roden's the author. And he discusses what it looks like to live a life of no reputation, as Jesus did. I'd encourage you to pick it up. I think that's one of the ways we can give everything we have, is to make God's opinion more important than others. Secondly, here's application point number two. Giving everything means that I will lean into biblical risk. So the widow here not only didn't care what folks thought about her, I believe it's safe to say she was willing to risk some things. When she gave those last two copper coins, she probably was wondering, I'm not sure what's for supper. <laughs> I'm not sure what's next. 
There was a lot of question, but she obeyed and did the right thing. And I've discovered that my life tends to want to drift towards comfort. Do you notice that about your life? Like I don't naturally, and unfortunately, I don't even sometimes supernaturally chase risk. I, I tend to want to build the walls, find the comfort zone, and kind of hunker down. I like security. You know, you like things to be kind of uh, safe. My sense is that some of you are in this place, and my sense as a, as a congregation is we have become a little too comfortable as well. Now, I don't think this is because of blatant sin. I think it's because of blind spots. Here's the greatest one. We begin to think that the church, and we do this personally or even corporately, is really about my preferences, my likes, you know, um, kind of my desires, and after all, Todd, it, I, should, I should feel comfortable there. I should like it there. It should be like I want it to be. And there is a point in which church should be liked. Are you with me? We're not going to deny that. There's a place in this where there's a certain right kind of comfort. But church isn't designed, and neither is our life designed personally just to be comfortable. The truth is, the church wasn't birthed to keep us safe from risk. Church was birthed to make us strong for risk. And see, sometimes what happens in church is this. We, we subtly begin to manage the machine to make sure it, it fits what we like and is comfortable, and we're not really moving forward the mission. But moving forward the mission means we are willing to embrace some risk. I'd remind you, the picture that Christ gave of the church in Matthew 16 is one of an offensive position. He says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so the gates are set up in a defensive posture. So Christ did not picture the church as like in this place of like, okay, leave us alone and we'll see if we can hold steady. He pictures the church advancing, offensively moving forward, which, in, in, uh, which no doubt implies risk. And he promises the hell, hell itself will not stop the church. So I need to make sure you understand something. I need to, and we need to. You probably need to embrace risk more. Now, we don't need to embrace foolishness. But we do need to embrace risk. And maybe you're wondering, Todd, what's the difference? Let me just share a few thoughts about risk with you, okay? I've put some thought into this, listened and read some things, and I think I can help you a little bit here. There are three components to risk that I want you to be aware of. Risk involves ignorance, action, and sacrifice. Every time. There'll be different degrees of those, but all risk involves something you do not know and aren't aware of, or it wouldn't be a risk, correct? It involves action, and typically in a risk, it'll be sacrificial action. You've got to give something up. Now, we undertake risk with those three things at least. But Jesus, or God, only undertakes two of those. He undertakes action and he undertakes sacrifice. But, but God is not ignorant of any situation. So technically speaking, God never takes a risk. Did you know that? Now, he's always taking action and it's sacrificial. But because he knows the outcome, it isn't a risk like it is for us. So we risk, but you know why we can risk? Because we trust God who doesn't risk. 
He takes action and it's sacrificial. But because he knows how things will end, he's working all things for his purposes, we can rely and be confident as we take risks. And this is clearly seen in the Bible in several places. Do you recall in Acts 16 when they're trying to get into Bithynia, Paul and his workers, and they're going to this region of the, of the world and they're knocking, trying to get in to do evangelism and ministry and start churches? They can't get in. So in their minds, their risk didn't work out right. But actually, it was God's avenue to get them over to Macedonia. And God needed them to risk some things in Bithynia to actually get them to Macedonia. And often what we see is like, oh, I didn't do well at that, or we didn't do well at that, or that didn't work out. It actually still is part of God's plan and picture in the ultimate end. He's working all things out as we sang. You see this in Joseph's life. 10 to 13 years of difficult things like prison and betrayal by his brothers. But God was moving Joseph to vice president in Egypt so he could save his people in the time of the famine. We could list a number of things like Esther. Here's my point. Risk is part of God's kingdom equation. And I want our kids to especially hear this. And every adult here would verify this. They may not like it. And I'm in a light. Here's, here's the truth, though. As you age and as you get older and as you kind of Velcro things to your life, your job, your location, your family, those aren't negative, but they become heavy things to lift if ever you want to take more risk. So as God calls you to do certain things, you've got to move a lot of things to take those risks. When you're young, you're agile. You're more flexible. There's not many things kind of strapped to you, weighing you down. So don't be afraid to take risk in these early years of your life. And all the adults above 25 said, Amen. Amen, church. We should breathe on the flame within our young people. Consider, what would God have me do with these years when I have less things strapping me down to the here and now? It may be you stay right here. Hallelujah. But as, as long as it's what God wants you to do, then go for it. But I'd encourage you to consider things like living globally and, and somewhere else for God's purposes, at least for a time period. Take two years. We're part of a network of churches that has a thing called Go To. And you can spend two years with one of our partners serving in a foreign field. And then you'll come back in two years. But when you can give away two years, why not go for it? Risk that. We had one of our own recently spend four and a half months in Australia with one of our partners. She's here this morning. And I'm so proud of her for risking some things. Just saying, let's just test the waters here. You can when you're young. So I want to encourage not only our young people, but all of us to consider what it would look like to be more risking. I think that's part of giving everything we have. Here's some ways we can embrace risk at First Family. I'll just run through some ideas that I've been thinking about writing down. I think we could take more risk in our giving, take more risk in the freedom we have in worship, See, it's funny how these are tied together. Often some of you are worried about what folks think of you, and so you just remain very inhibited. You're afraid to risk an actual, authentic, expressive form of worship because of what the person near you thinks of you. Isn't that interesting? You should lay aside your reputation, and man, take a risk and get your body and your mind involved in worshiping God. We could be more risk-taking in how we view missions, whether it's Signing up for a trip this year to France or maybe you want to go with me to Turkey and see some of our partners there. Maybe it's just going to Reno or Utah. They're local and close. We have 
kind of a wide range of options on purpose so folks can kind of access them that with, with a little money or maybe it costs a little more. But nothing will change your life like spending time outside of America or in another context, especially a, a context with a different language. You'll begin to get a heart for the globe and God's heart for every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. And so we continually come to you and say, hey, listen, what, how and where and when and how would God want to move your heart? It takes some risk to try it. I don't like to fly. I can't take the time off work. And those are all legitimate things to consider, but don't let them stop you. Think about it. And you say, Todd, how do I know if it's, if it's actually just a discomfort, which is good. I think risk is just on the edge of comfort into discomfort. That's helpful. It's healthy. I think it's good to kind of take a step into risk, live there for a bit, and come back to this area of comfort and kind of... Uh, Catch your breath. So it's kind of an inhale, exhale thing that's going on. How do I know, Todd, if it's, if it's outside of my comfort zone uh, and suddenly into a delusional zone, right? Yeah. When you think that suddenly it's, it's more than discomfort and it becomes delusional, that's not risk, that's nonsense. And one of the ways we find that out is through accountability. People around us. Solomon said that in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. So I would encourage you, talk about your risk in your small group. Those you're in community with, talk about them with your family. Have those who you trust say, hey, here's what I'm sensing from the Lord. What do you think about that? And then the person listening, if hopefully they're kind of a risk taker, or at least they're willing to give everything they have. And they're like, you know, I can see that being something that would be difficult, hard, but it might be helpful right now for you. This could be a good step for you. Or I think you're out like way beyond left field right now. <laughs> it's okay to have those conversations. At our church here, there's good plurality among our leadership. There's good community in our small groups. And so put some things on the table. Talk about them. I think about our church, some things we're considering. You know, right now, this, is, this auditorium is practically full. Now, there's seats. There's, there's several over here and a few here, some there. If you're a guest and you walk in, you may sense it's fuller than it really is. I get all that. So do we wait until it's jam-packed and then decide, oh, let's, let's look at a third service? Are we more strategic and do we risk a third service even when we, we, we technically have seats, but would it be a good idea perhaps with our city's continued growth to think about a third service sooner than later? Or maybe a, a plant in Ankeny or maybe a second site. Or maybe sending some people out in some ways that are creative. 1030 is not quite as crowded as 830. We've started some classes at 830 to free up some seats here. We're thinking, though, what would it look like? And here's why I'm saying that, here's why I'm saying that to you. When you hear about maybe possible things we want to do and things we're going to bring to you, Think along the lines of how would this advance us in reaching our city, which is growing. Filled with people who don't know Christ. So several of our initiatives and things we're looking at are aimed at that. I just want to encourage you. Think about ways that we can reach our city, and whether it's stopping some ministries, starting some ministries, evaluating all ministries, whether it's a structural issue, a logistical issue. Here's what I believe. When you embrace risk, you're willing to put it all on the table. And if you're not willing to put it all on the table of evaluation for the sake of the gospel, my sense is you're protecting your own kingdom, not pursuing his. Risk is actually a friend. And I think it's part of what it means to give everything you have. Let me lastly, let me quickly share two more things that I'm learning and just trying to work through as God convicts my heart. I think it also means looking beyond your retirement. Now, 
that I've said that, if you're below 50, don't tune me out. Because retirement is just a word we use, and it's not a word that means you, you quit being involved and working for God's purposes, but we sometimes think it's like this free pass to living on the beach, right? And, and being totally self-absorbed in my own agenda. So that's not retirement, that's carnality, all right? Retirement in my mind, and I think that I can bear this out from Scripture, is simply the opportunity not to have to work a job to pay your expenses. It doesn't mean you quit working. It doesn't mean you quit being energetic or active. It doesn't mean you, you don't keep living for God's purposes. But the necessity of having to work a job to pay your expenses may not be the pressing need. I don't know when I'm going to do that. The jury's still out for me and Julie. We're working towards it. Maybe you're in the same boat. There's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is saying, oh, good, retirement's around the corner. I can suddenly forget all callings on my life, and I can just absorb, absorb, and consume, and consume. That's not retirement. That's laziness. That's selfishness. And I think it's helpful for all of us to look beyond retirement and ask this. How would God want me to spend what is hopefully our wisest years? I got a call a few days ago from Edgar Cabrera, one of our elders. They're in Florida, ironically. <laughs> Forgive me, Edgar. Um, they're in Florida for a month. He just retired January 31st. And he called me a few days before that. He said, Todd, can we get some time together and talk? He said, I want to ask you, how can I be more involved at church now that I've got more time? He shared with me some things in his heart, some passions he has. You know, I love hearing that. Um, He's looking beyond retirement, thinking how he can use his time. And I, I tend to think all of us should have that mindset. If we're going to give everything we have, then in 2020, it probably looks like being able to say, when I'm done having to work to pay my bills, what could I do for God? It may involve more time with your family, grandkids. I don't think those things are wrong, but here's what I would say to you without any apology, and I'm make sure I avoid the fear of man here, Okay. The picture you see on the screen, uh, that's not a biblical picture of retirement. Now, if you've got a nap on vacation, that's good. No problem. But if this is your 24-7 life when you finally quit your work and your life is all about you and it's just self-absorption, that's not the biblical picture of retirement. So in our wisest years, with more time at our discretion, how could we really advance God's kingdom? I think giving everything we have means looking beyond retirement and saying, what's next? It means this, that we would all live and give our life, watch this church, as an offering to be consumed, not as an opportunity to consume. Lastly, let me just mention this final thing. I think giving everything I have means that we're going to lead by modeling radical obedience. Now, I want to mention this to you because this is what it looks like from the perspective of those who are following, from those who are watching. They would say, man, that person is on fire. They're radical. But the person who's involved in it, the leader, guess what? They consider it normative. This is why they're considered a leader because leaders have a unique way of normalizing what's, what other folks think is radical. You see them give, like, like this, this widow. It was just in her normal uh, operating procedure. I'm giving everything. I'm in. 
I think obedience for leaders sometimes appears to be radical to those who are watching. But I would remind you of this, church. I speak to all of our leaders in this room. If you make obedience optional in this generation, the next generation will be sure it's unnecessary. So I would call upon our leaders to live in such a way that, yeah, the folks watching you may think, man, you're radical. You're on steroids for Jesus, man. But the truth is, you just consider that normal. Risk and sacrifice and generosity and serving. Man, it's, it's the normal way we live our lives. In 30 plus years of preaching on a regular basis, in different ways in church work, but 30 years of preaching regularly, here's something I've noticed, that often pastors tend to make God's ordinary, now watch me here, I'll be misinterpreted if we're not careful. Pastors sometimes tend to make what's ordinary and expected extraordinary and like you're doing God a favor. I've seen this in areas like baptism where we give people like tons of room to kind of like decide if they want to get baptized or not. And I've always wondered like, how, does that, how has that become optional? Isn't baptism the first thing a Christian does? It is. In the biblical record, it's conversion, immersion, and usually they're pretty close together in, time, in proximity as far as time goes. And so my stance has been, I know some of you kind of push back at this. I'm good with this agreement as long as we're not destructive, right? My sense has been, man, when you get saved, let's get baptized quickly. I'm not for thoughtless baptisms. I'm not for meaningless immersion at all. But when you read Acts 8, you read Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 16, you find that when they were saved, their first step was to identify with the body in a, in a public way in baptism. But I find that sometimes we, we kind of make that an optional step in some churches, Prayer, Bible reading, fasting. We've created almost categories like, well, if you read your Bible every day, if you read your Bible regularly, if you're praying, if you gather with the church to pray, if you fast, like, man, that's like next level stuff. Really? And so I just want to encourage you. What God lays out as normative patterns for obedience, I think leaders say, that's what I do. And it, it, it's not like a, a mark of a hero to simply obey what God calls us to do. It's the mark of a servant. It's the mark of someone who's just all in to what God would say. This is why I love to, I love to think about my parents in this way. They're both 82 and 80. My, my dad and mom are 82 and 80. And you know, they've been in the same church over 45 years. And that church has been through some highs and some lows. They've led small groups. I think there they call them Sunday school, by the way. Um, they've been in leadership. They've been janitors. Um, they've been there early. They stay late. And they just continually serve. When you ask mom and dad about it, that's like, well, what, what's the option? That's what we do, Todd. We're just all in. They don't expect applause. They don't expect the thank you letter. Um, they don't expect anything. They just say, this is what we do as followers. And I, I love thinking about their example. I love just meditating on it because you know what? Man, that's the posture of a widow. Like, hey, here's two coins. Psh, I'm all in. And then not expecting that to be considered something radical. That's just what they do. And so I call you and I call myself to radical obedience as normal. 
I call you to a heart for lost people as normative. To praying for those who don't yet know Christ as what we do regularly. I call you to a spirit of unity, a vision for growth, a heart for generosity, and a life of risk. And if you're wondering right now, well, Todd, how is that possible? Here's the best news of all. It's possible because Jesus leads the way in this. You see, this story of the widow has one interpretive meaning. That true discipleship is giving everything you have. And it has many application points. I've shared four with you that mean some things to me convictionally. I think they would to you and to our church. But listen, this also serves as a forecast of how Jesus empowers us to live this way. Because in just a few days, in three days, Jesus would do exactly what the widow modeled and symbolized. He would go to Golgotha and he would give everything he had, wouldn't he? He would lay down his life. And so when he calls us to this kind of lifestyle, when he says this is true discipleship, giving everything you have, he's not speaking out of a vacuum. He's speaking from one who modeled it. And so this is what fuels us to surrender all. And to give everything we have. I would encourage you this morning. Ask yourself, are you in a continued posture of surrendering more of your life to God? Or are you probably like me? Do you pray, Lord, yes, everything's on the altar. When secretly you kind of mean some things. And would you this morning join me in saying, God, I want to once again just say to you, I'm going to give you everything. And though the flesh pulls hard at that, and though my selfishness really leans into that, Lord, I'm surrendering all again today for your name and your kingdom. Lord, I want to be like the widow, and I want to be like you. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.